Okay, this morning is January 20th, 2008. Our topic this morning is distinction. The word distinction. So you'll be going to 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. In the 10th chapter and first verse, Paul begins to lay out some things. He begins to explain from Israel's history certain events that happened. Not much different than if from our history, from American history, history, I began with Valley Forge and moved forward through the major monumental events of our history. And then he makes this powerful statement in the sixth verse. Now these things, the things in Israel's history, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. The national history for the nation of Israel was meant to serve as an example for all the nations of the world of good things and bad things. They are a teaching tool, a priestly nation. We learn from things that they got correct. We learn from things they did not get correct. But when we read their lives, when we read their national history, it serves the purpose of being an example for us to allow us to get things right that they got right and to avoid the errors that they made. I have a friend, a very close friend, that had an older brother. And the older brother's life meant to serve as an example. When the older brother stole the Walkman and was beaten severely for it and found himself in a jail in a foreign country, the younger brother said, I think I'm probably not going to do that. He never had to experience that mistake himself to know that the consequences outweighed the actions. Does that make sense? Well, this morning we're going to look backwards at Israel's history. We're going to look at a time period where God Himself sent them into a situation to benefit you in 2008. Can you think that we might owe them a small debt if their national history was meant to serve us? How about that? How would you like to find out that God had enslaved your entire nation, enslaved, in a foreign country, and then brought you out with mighty acts of deliverance for the benefit of a people yet unborn? Would you think that was very fair if you were the nation being enslaved? But they also got to see God's mighty deliverance. See, the people of God have always been called on to endure unimaginable things for the benefits of other people. When we say Jesus is our Lord, we want to be like Jesus, what would Jesus do? Understand that Jesus' mission was to come and endure unimaginable things for our benefit. Can you all say amen to that? You know that that's true? How many of you saw the movie Passion of Christ and jumped up from your seat and said, Whoa, I want to go get some of that! Probably not, right? You left with a sick feeling in your stomach as if you had watched your friend getting beaten up, right? unimaginable things for the benefit of others. Where there is great suffering, there's opportunity for great glory. Turn with me then to Genesis 15. I want to hear how God announces this. The Bible says that Abraham was a friend of God. It says the same thing about Moses. Two very unique men. In Genesis 15... God is making an outstanding promise to Abraham. But it contains a little bit of bitter herb, if you will. 
How many of you would like to find out that you are going to father a nation and that that nation is going to reign with God forever? That's good news, right? Right? Yeah, y'all getting me worried. Did y'all all convert to Islam and I didn't know it? Because that's a different kind of nation. You get converted at the point of a sword in that nation. He finds out he is the father of the nations. He's going to inherit the world, Romans 4 says. But there's this little caveat, this little problem, and it's not the fact that he's childless. That's, that's an issue in and of itself. It's verse 13 of chapter 16. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain. Can, can you imagine that the God of the universe speaks to you and says, Know for certain? What, did you think he was joking? Did you think he was speaking in a hypothetical sense? Is God going to tap you on the shoulder, speak to you, and then say, <laughs> Just kidding. Psych your mind. Right, Matthew? I heard him say that in worship. I have no idea what it means. So if it's bad, go see Matthew. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated uh, for a few 45 minutes or so. 400 years. Anybody know how long this nation's been around? Huh? Yeah, two-something. Thank you. That's excellent math. Two-something. 400 years. We're talking about longer than this nation's even been around. Could you lose your national identity in a time period where you were enslaved over 400 years? Has anybody um, seen a Roman Caesar lately? No jokes here. Truth. Rome ruled the world conquered nations like Israel. But today their language is not spoken. Their capital is non-existent and their Caesars are all dead. Israel conquered many times by much more powerful nations, but their language is spoken. Their religion is alive. Their borders are intact, although disputed. And they're not going anywhere. When God establishes something, it is meant to endure. 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. (laughs) How many of you want to hear great possessions? Nick, you're going to get great possessions. I mean, isn't that how you sell a Christian book at Walmart? It really is, isn't it? This is three ways for you to be blessed. 17.5 ways for you to be a better man and be more wealthy, right? Over and over and over. You can get your finger out of your throat as we talk about those things. God first says to them, you will be enslaved, and then I will bring you out, and the end result will be good. I'm suggesting there's a pattern there for all time. We endure hardship for the benefit of the kingdom. God delivers us through the hardship, and we end up better off than we started. But I want to look at exactly what they endured and how God brought them out. So turn with me to Exodus. Israel's calling, by the way, Israel and the man Jesus, their lives mirror each other. They absolutely mirror each other. And prophecies spoken about Israel are applied to Jesus. Out of Egypt I will call my son. Uh, Over and over and over, these kind of prophecies are applied. Y'all in Exodus? You don't know where to go in Exodus, do you? Turn to Exodus 8. I lied. Turn to Exodus 7. 
I told you that I rarely lie when I'm preaching. I did not say that I never do it. And I moved quickly to repent and change it, didn't I? Okay. Everybody knows that when Israel came out of Egypt, when the Israelites were set free, how did it happen? Ten powerful plagues, right? God had announced in advance that they would be enslaved. And then He was going to bring them out with powerful, wondrous acts. And these things were examples for us. So it goes with the nation of Israel, so it goes with the rest of the world. I'm not the first one to have originated that thing. I'm telling you that it is true. You can watch that little nation in the Middle East and learn an awful lot about your life. But today we're going to look in the history book. The first plague that occurs, what happens? Moses shows up and he says, the Lord says, let my people go. Pharaoh does not respond very favorably to that. In fact, starting in the 14th verse of chapter 7, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so, so that they may worship me. Now, I don't want to read all of the plagues to you. There's a few that we're going to focus in on. But you know he did not let them go with the first plague, right? Hence, we have nine more. There are some reasons he didn't let them go. I'm suggesting that Israel was enslaved in Egypt for the purpose of all mankind and future generations realizing that we are enslaved to things. That their enslavement and subsequent deliverance is an example for us of how to be delivered from every sin, every power that would ever enslave us or entrap us. That when we look at Pharaoh's life and when we look at the Israelites' lives, what we see is an example of the very same struggle that goes on inside of us every day. And one of the reasons in this plague of blood, which incidentally is a monumental judgment on the gods of Egypt, the Nile was their source of life, and with a snap of his fingers, God made it bleed. With a look at this plague, we see some things, though. One of the things that we see is that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile, but they found a workaround. They found another way to make this work. They went out and dug for themselves They went out, and because they couldn't draw water from the Nile, and all the Nile's water, even in wooden buckets or in stone jars, had turned to blood, they went out and dug their own wells to alleviate the pressure that God was putting on them. Well, if Paul said all of these things were written for our benefit, if he said that they were examples for us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did, How does that kind of workaround to alleviate pressure upon our lives relate to us? To avoid the searing conviction of the Holy Ghost. To avoid what happens when we read the Word and we realize areas of our lives are not measuring up. Often we find our own little workarounds. In fact, what do you call it if you have a five a 10, and a 20 in your wallet. What are those? They're denominations of money. 
And you might prefer to carry it one kind of denomination or another. When you cash a check, what happens? They say, hey, do you want that in 20, 10, 5, a few of you hundreds, right? Because you prefer to carry certain denominations of money in your pocket. You find some more useful to your purposes than others. Do you like to go pay for a dollar candy bar with a $100 bill? Why not? Do you want your change in ones when you hand a 100 to somebody? Probably not. That's inconvenient, right? Cisterns in the Bible are an important thing. Keep your finger in Exodus. Turn with me to Jeremiah 2. Good and bad in Israel was meant to serve as an example for us. Yeah, y'all have given up your... Uh, there we go, Mandy. Jeremiah 2, is the church there? How quiet this morning. You must be bracing for something hard. Jeremiah 2. God speaks of His own people. Years later, when they're going into an enslavement, another time, in the 13th verse, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken Me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that, that cannot hold water. When we as Christians look at God and say, Hey, you are the Lord. You are the spring of life. You're all that is good. But then we go and do what we want to do. Rather than drinking of His will, it is like an Egyptian feeling the pressure, feeling the weight of God on your life by condemning the river and going to dig your own cistern, finding a workaround. And this shows up in a lot of ways. What we tend to do is separate ourselves from anybody that shines light into our darkness. In fact, we'll do it so much that if we are in churches where the powerful Word of God is coming forth in a way that makes us feel uncomfortable, what do we do? We go group with people that have like weaknesses as we do, that have agreed to ignore major portions of God's will and God's Word so that we're more comfortable. We draw a great big box and we say, hey, in our experience, here are the 14 points that we can agree on about God. We say, hey, it's our statement. It's just our doctrinal statement. We have a duty to let people know what we believe. Okay, well, what happens when somebody brings up something outside of the box you put God in? Well, they can't be a part of our fellowship. They're simply not whatever the denomination is. And we push them right on down the road. So what we do is we all make an approval, a uh, committee or treaty, to join hands and agree what we're just not going to talk about. We're going to dig our own cistern because it makes us feel better and it avoids conviction in areas. Then something happens. God, because He loves you, sends some other pressure into your life. Something that says, you know what? I know we've all agreed about these things, but you put seven points in this eighth one that's really important to me, and all of a sudden I can't sleep. All of a sudden I can't quit thinking about it. And I just have to know. I have to know. And this is how God gets us to push past that place. We need to learn from their example. They did something else, though. By the way, for a fun study, when you look at this spring, 
Proverbs 5, the 15th verse says, Drink water from your own well. Don't pour your water out in the streets. And it's a euphemism. It's an idiom. It's a Hebrew expression that is teaching people about husband and wife intimacy. It's supposed to occur solely between a husband and wife. But God takes that same language and He calls Himself the spring of life for His people and says, you're committing adultery because you keep going out to dig your own cisterns, cisterns that will never satisfy you. God puts Himself in the position of a jilted lover and calls a nation adulterous. Jesus stands up in John 7.37 and says, if anybody is thirsty, come and drink of Me. And then in John 8, He writes people's names in the dust because they persist in rejecting Him. And Jeremiah had said that that would occur. That is a powerful study you should do sometime. We're going to leave cisterns alone. We're going to tell you that in our dealing with the ways that the devil would entrap us, one of his tools is to give you a workaround. I don't really have to do this because, hey, that group over there decided back in the 1500s, I just don't have to. We ignore our own consciences. We seal ourselves from the Word of God by finding people who have agreed to make the same treaty that we have. Can you all not relate to any of that? Some of them are obvious. Some are less obvious. Do you hang out with people that have the same weaknesses that you do because you know it's acceptable among them? I used to know this woman named Becky Clawson. And she loved Jesus. And I was just a dumb kid painting classrooms. I had, uh, in fact, some of us all worked together. We had this epoxy paint we painted on the walls in the classrooms. And it was horrible, nasty work. But we could listen to the Bible all day long. And so we agreed to do it. And whenever I was around Becky, she made me feel uncomfortable. And the reason she made me feel uncomfortable was she lived by the Word in a way that was intense. And I would do something like she would say, Hey, Eric, how's your day? Well, it's been a little rough, Miss Becky. She'd look me in the eye, almost upset with me that I told her the truth, and say, Nevertheless, God, you know, put aside your frown. Put a smile on your face. And I'm like, Well, geez, why'd you ask, Becky? You know, felt like she was entrapping me on a regular basis. She came to me one time and said, Is that your car parked out there? There's 400 spaces, okay? 400 spaces out there, not a car out there. She knows it's mine. It's got big Jesus bumper stickers everywhere. It was parked in one of like 35 handicapped spaces. There is nobody there. She says, is that your car out there? Yes, Miss Becky. She said, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Yes, ma'am, I'm going to move my car. Some of you remember her, I'm sure. But see, Becky had experienced the hurt that comes from not dealing with sin properly. And she knew what it was to have a broken marriage. And she knew what it was to have children that were wavered. And it had hurt her. So she was intolerant in, of it in new believers. She knew that if she could get me to take it as seriously as she did, even in the small things, that later in life when I faced bigger trials, I would have the same standard. So I appreciate Becky. Thank God that he sends people to keep us from making our own little workarounds. You know what I mean when I say work around? Do we have to keep explaining that? You know this is wrong, but come on. It's not that bad. 
um, Pastor Matthew was over the other day, and he didn't he didn't say anything about it. You know, work around. One of the enemy's tactics to keep you enslaved is for you to fan the heat from the kitchen by finding a way to work around it a little bit rather than dealing with the issue. The next thing that they did, the magicians in Egypt come out and say, hey, hey, no big deal, Pharaoh. You know why? So he turned the water into blood. We can do it by our secret arts. This makes things feel a little less supernatural. You see this all of the time. I watch Channel 58, the History Channel. I watch Discovery and National Geographic all of the time because it's, it's like cheating. You don't have to read, and they sit there and teach you as long as you'll sit and eat potato chips, right? I mean, it, it's, it's wonderful. This kind of thing happens when they say, yeah, yeah, the plagues in Egypt are easily explained. You see, at this time of year, the wind blows a certain direction and blah, 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 blah. There is a movement that the devil uses to say, that thing that happened, that cancer healing that Michelle says she had, lots of people going to remission. There is a way that the devil works at saying, look, it's not really that supernatural. I was one time in a large spirit-filled church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I looked up and saw the staff of a denominational church sitting on the back row with clipboards and pencils. The same people told me to stay away from that church because I needed to stay in the denomination I was in. But they were there taking notes. About a month later, they created a service in their gym with lights and smoke machines and new kinds of instruments that had never been played in the church. This is a workaround, friends. This is a, by our secret arts, we're going to try to produce the same thing that we see God is doing over there so that people won't see it. It's quite so supernatural. The devil is subtle. We can learn from these examples. Pharaoh should have said, Oh, dear God, the Nile is one of our largest gods, and with a snap of his fingers, God made the thing bleed out. None of us can drink. None of us can do anything. Let him go. Let him go. Let him go. Be obedient to God's Word. But what kept him from doing that and what kept the people from doing it is they found a way to work around it. They dug their own cistern. They hired for themselves magicians to come and said, that's not really so supernatural. They say that's God, but look, we can do it ourselves. And the people are held captive. The nation is held captive. And the sin continues. We go on from a plague of frogs. By the way, Jesus did miracles. And what did the religious people in Israel say? Oh, he does this by the power of Beelzebub. Same thing. What he's doing is not so supernatural. All kinds of people can do that. The devil. God said you could be forgiven of many, many things, but that's one that uh, seems to push his limits. You need to be very careful about calling God's work the devil. The next plague we move to, plague of frogs. If this had been South Louisiana, this would not have been such a plague. It would have been a delicacy. We'd have got some batter. And fried doesn't. And they all say, oh, Judah, you've eaten frogs, haven't you? They're good, aren't they? Not, not so many frogs that they invade every area of your house, that they take over your land, and that when the plague has subsided, you have to heap them into piles. That's a lot of frogs. Not even my Cajun friends in Lafayette can eat all of those. 
cast his people in Thibodeau, Mike. This time there is an escalation. I want you to know we're not just learning about the devil's tactics as we read about this. We're learning about God's tactics. At first, Moses just shows up and says, the Lord says, let him go. Now the Lord says, let them go, or there's going to be some consequences, Pharaoh. He didn't really explain that before. <laughs> but now that Pharaoh's had a little taste of God and God's had a little taste of Pharaoh, he's explaining that. When these frogs come, the magicians continue to reproduce the supernatural effects. And Pharaoh tests Moses. He does something, and you need to get this. Pharaoh says, look, these frogs are horrid. Don't like the frogs. Moses, come on, let's talk. We've got to do something about the frogs. He says, if you pray and God sends the frogs away, then we'll do what you want and what God wants. If you do what I want, then I will do what God wants. Turn with me to Luke 9. Keep your finger in Exodus. Luke 9. Come on, Steve's there. Where are the rest of you? Talk to me. Turning, 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 turning. There! It's like an auction. Y'all in Luke 9? Still turning? There. Luke 9. In verse 59, this is Jesus speaking to another man. We don't know his name. We just know he's speaking to another man. He said to another man, follow me. That is a word. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Anointed One, who was the prophet of all prophets, so that you had to listen to Him or you would be cut off from the people, said, Follow Me. Friends, can we say that God's Word is not optional? That for Him to be God and us to be His people, when He says jump, we say, How high? Better yet, we begin to jump and then ask Him if it was high enough. When God speaks for Him to be God, we simply Obey. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me. Now, I want to submit to you something this morning. When we say first let me, it doesn't matter what comes after this. It just so happens that what comes after this is first let me go bury my father. Compelling reason, right? It could have been First, let me go bring a glass of water to my dying mother. It could have been, first, let me go save my child from a raging fire. And none of that would have mattered. When the king says, follow me, and our response is, first, let me, we are in rebellion to God. Because he has said, do, and we have given God a condition for our obedience. Not only do the people of God sometimes dig their own cisterns to avoid the searing conviction, not only do we use our theologians to explain away the supernatural aspects of God, but we also have a habit as the people of God of saying, I will do God's will, but first I'm going to do mine. That does not work. You are not in His kingdom when we do that. So, well... I did it once and I'm still in his kingdom. Yeah, 
Don't make grace a license for immorality or you will find yourself deceived and outside of his kingdom. But the magicians that we hired, they said that can't even happen. Stick with them here. Ignore God's word for what they tell you about it and you will end up in a place you never wanted to be. Our response to God's will can never be, but first, let me. It simply has to be, yes, I will do it, and then we trust that because God loves us, whatever else needed to get done will get done. Do you think that Jesus was an insensitive person? <laughs> Jesus, the, uh, the human being born without emotion, right? Jesus, the cold fish. Jesus, the tyrant. No, this guy is the embodiment of God's love. Do you think that he's not concerned with the needs that this guy has in his life? Of course he is. That's beside the point. He wanted his obedience first. Most of the time we're pledging our obedience when God does whatever we want him to do. That doesn't make him a God. That makes him a genie in your little magic bottle. See, when we say this is what we believe about God, God is the God of these 14 points or these seven, or these eight, or these 27. This is our doctrinal statement about God. This is all He's done. It's all He'll ever will do. It's what you need to agree on to be accepted among our number, and we won't discuss anything else. And then you say, before I do what God told me to do, I first want to do this. What we have done is put God into a bottle called the doctrinal statement and made Him our genie. We do what He wants only if he does what we want. Does that sound like a relationship where Jesus is your Lord, your owner, your master, your controller? No, that leaves you, at the very least, as his co-pilot. There's another popular sticker. Co-pilot? Really, is that how that works? God's your co-pilot? Hmm. Makes you think maybe our, the church world has gone a little bit awry, that we could put something on our car like God is my co-pilot. Now, if you have that sticker on your car, I have a life-changing ministries bumper sticker you can cover it up with because I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm trying to say that our American version of Christianity is still in slavery in Egypt and we don't even know it. And all of our lives, what we do is we are learning to throw off more of Pharaoh's holds. So in the plague of the frogs, Pharaoh tests Moses and tests God. He says, if God... We'll get rid of these frogs, then I will let the people go. Well, God met Pharaoh's test. And more than that, he let Pharaoh name the time in which he wanted the frogs to go. So there was no denying this time that it was a coincidence. There's an interesting thing that happens, though. You don't turn to Exodus, turn to Jude. You'll find the last book in your Bible, which is Revelation. If you've gone to the book of Concordances, you went too far. And then hang a left from Revelation. The book of maps is also an ill-advised choice. From Revelation, you'll hang a left until you reach the tiny little book of Jude. Something happens with Pharaoh. He says, if God will do this for me, then I will do what God wants. Well, God came through on his end of the bargain, but Pharaoh didn't. This kind of first let me attitude does something. It begins to change 
God's grace into something else. And I'm still looking for it on my page. Hmm. Fourth verse. They are godless... I'm sorry, let's start in four. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. Now, do you think that these men slipped into a church by saying Jesus is not the Christ, He is not the Lord, and He is not Sovereign? No, they would have been thrown out on their ear immediately. The devil is always more subtle than that. They did not say Jesus is not Lord. They did not say Jesus is not the Christ or is not sovereign. They just acted as if He was not the Christ, not the Lord, or not their sovereign. That is a monarch who rules over you. And how do we do that? Well, by giving demands to God. God, if you do this, then I will be obedient. By digging our own wells. By producing our own magicians by doing whatever it takes to still retain a magic word, control. When we are in control of our lives, then God is not our sovereign, He is not our Lord, and Jesus is not our anointed one. He might be somebody else's. Kind of like saying, oh yeah, uh, that's the King of England. I believe it. He's the King of England. Awesome! King of England, monarch, royalty, King of England. But I don't live in England. That's exactly what this is like. People are proclaiming Jesus as Lord. He's just not their Lord. I don't want the people of God to be enslaved. What we learn from Pharaoh is that when a person's heart is not right and we give conditions to God by saying, first let me make my first million, get married, uh, build a big enough peer group to feel comfortable, have a car, uh, have a job, have whatever it is. First, let me. <laughs> first, let me have all my babies in the United States. Then I will go to the mission field. Whatever the first is. When we do that, what happens is we begin to harden our hearts so that if God is merciful to us and does not throw a lightning bolt like Zeus would do and burn us, it creates in us an attitude that says, uh-oh, I can get away with this. I can do this. I can give conditions to God and because of His grace, what you end up doing is practicing immorality. There's probably nowhere in the world that that's worse than the Spirit-filled church because what we do is instead of saying, first let me go, we say, God said, boy, how sad is that? We lay at the feet of the Lord our own disobedience. God said that I'm to go march in this rally. It's raining, so God told me to stay home and stay in bed. Right. God speaks to you like you changed the cable channels, huh? An unstable man, double-minded, and all he does. James wrote about us long before we existed. Pharaoh is there, and he knows that he has to do something because he does not like what's happening. But he still does not want to do God's will. So he practices deception. How about that? Was that the last plague? Where do we go from here? 
What plague is next? You can turn to Exodus. Gnats. Like my kids say, nasty. We go from frogs straight into gnats. Now, biblical gnats are something that are argued about a lot. Okay? Some people say these are lice. Some say they're mosquitoes because the next plague is flies. Right? Flies that most people would call gnats. But I don't want to confuse you. So, whatever this is, it's some kind of destructive insect that is nasty. There's not much communication recorded here. It's as if God says, you know, I think I'm going to punch on him a while before we have any more discussions. The magicians this time, though, could not reproduce this miracle. In fact, the magicians determined something. They tried, and when they couldn't do it, they went, this must be the finger of God. They actually used that phrase, the finger of God. You know what's interesting about that? If we will stand with God, He will turn up the heat on our adversaries like this. He will keep escalating it and escalating it and escalating it. Not the Cadillac Escalade. He is escalating the situation to the point where those who stand with Him will be shown to have God's hand in their midst. There's only two other times in all of the Scripture that this is mentioned. You can take this down as a note if you want. I'm not going to turn there. Deuteronomy 9.10. Speaking of the two stone tablets, it says they were inscribed by the very finger of God. Friends, when we stand our ground doing what God said to do, even if the whole world stands against us, you know what they'll see? They will see that your life has been inscribed by the finger of God. That you are like those commandments. That you bear in your personality, in your actions, in your lifestyle, the work of God. The magicians can't do that. There is no counterfeit for living the Word of God. You understand that? That is something that cannot be counterfeited. It will always be found out. There are people that are wolves that put on sheep's clothing. But how do you recognize them? By their fruit. See, you cannot fake godly fruit. I've gotten to the place in ministry when I see canine teeth, we cut them off or throw them out, period. We are not going to play games with that kind of thing. If you are struggling with sin and struggling against it, you'll find us compassionate and we are praying for you to be compassionate with us because we're in the same struggle. If you have partnered with sin, you said, nah, it's really no big deal. I'm going to hide it and continue to let it wreak destruction in people's lives. We will toss you out on your ear. We could use your seat, honestly. You know why? God will work with any human being, any human being, no matter what they have done, if they are contrite and crying out for His help. He will show His very commands to be inscribed on their hearts. He will take them and elevate them. But the human being that simply covers up what they do, hides it and refuses to get right, has no place in his kingdom, period. Now, I won't make an exception there, but I'm not the final judge. He is. And I'm thankful he's been merciful to me. I'm not going to use his mercy as a license to do what I want to do. There's one other place the finger of God is mentioned. In Luke 11, the 20th verse, 
the Pharisees have said, yeah, yeah, he casts out demons, but he does it by the power of God, or by the power of Beelzebub. Jesus' response is, if I don't, but I do this by the finger of God, then the kingdom is upon you. You need to understand this. Living where God wants us, when He wants us, doing what He says, shows everybody His fingerprints are all over us. And, according to Jesus, it shows them this right here is the border of the kingdom. You're not in it. But if you become like me, you step right into it. It gives people the opportunity to repent and change. If we're digging our own cisterns, if we're raising up our own theologian magicians, they don't get to see that. All they see is waffling, compromising, mamby-pamby Christianity where Jesus is king, but he's not your king. He's more of a good idea, a bless-me genie that you keep in your doctrinal bottle. Pharaoh did not listen, even with the plague of gnats. So we move to the plague of flies, and I'm going to read you this one. Starting in Exodus 8 and the 20th verse. Then the Lord said to Moshe, Get up early in the morning. God would have to speak to me to get me to do that. And confront Pharaoh. Do you hear how the language gets stronger? He's never said this before. He said, go speak to Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh I said. Go talk to Pharaoh. Or it's just left out altogether. But now we're reaching a place where it seems as if God is actually angry. And he says, you go confront Pharaoh. (laughs) Any of you ever been sent on a mission to confront somebody? Now, when did he tell him to go confront him? Early in the morning. There's a reason for this. The Egyptians went out to the Nile in the morning to worship it as a deity. So what he's really saying is, you go find that Pharaoh while he's worshiping his God, and you tell him the God of Israel has a message for him. God is ratcheting up the pressure. If we're going to learn from this, if it is really not good to fight with God, it's much better to yield to Him and find His mercy because He will ratchet the pressure up on you until it is unbearable. He does that. You know why He does it? Because you are His treasured possession and He will fight for you. And He knows that the greater the bondage, the greater the cry for a deliverer. And He's great enough to pull it all off and He will. How about that? Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water to say to him, This is what Yahweh says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials and on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies, even the ground where they are. But on that day, this is something new, something that has not been said previously. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. If you have a footnote there, it says I will put my redemption or my deliverance between my people and your people. 
God wants the lines clearly drawn. There is a kingdom that is rebellion, that is darkness, and there is a kingdom that is submission, that is life and light. And what God does in this instance is say, Pharaoh, I don't want you to think that these are normal struggles that normal people have. You're in a position where you persist in worshiping what you should not worship. Despite the display of my many mercies and miracles, you refuse to repent. So I'm going to bring upon you a judgment and you will be able to look and see the people of God and they will not suffer this judgment. I will make a distinction between you and them. The people of God were called to be a distinct people. How should people know that Cody is a Christian? They should know Cody is a Christian by the way he acts. His deeds should show them the kingdom of God. The words that come out of his mouth should show that his heart has been inscribed with the finger of God. This should put them in a place where they accept or reject the kingdom by accepting or rejecting Cody. Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples? Go in, preach the kingdom of God. If they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet on your way out the village. They are not worthy of the kingdom. The eighth chapter, he continues. Well, I want to tell you one more thing about distinction before we move. Turn with me to Malachi. Mm, you know what? We're closer to Leviticus. Let's do that. Turn to Leviticus. You'll be in the 20th chapter of Leviticus. Now look for the 25th verse. Kind of like a scavenger hunt, huh? You, therefore, must make a distinction between clean and unclean animals. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds. Do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground. Those which I have set apart is unclean for you. Set apart is unclean for you. I would submit to you today that part of Israel's history was that they were not even allowed to touch certain things as an example for you that God says some things are clean and some things are unclean. They were not allowed to sit down and eat anything that they wanted to eat. They had to eat only what God said was clean. People have looked at this and said, well, God cared about their health. It was because uh, pork is bad for you. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, they said, oh, well, this is because in this day, there is no refrigeration, and there are so many kinds of worms that live in this food. He didn't say that it was unclean for everybody. He said it was unclean for them. God has the right in our lives to make a distinction and say, Lynette, for you, this is not right. But for Fred, it is right. God has the right as our God to not put himself in a cookie-cutter box and to be able to say, for you, this movie where a guy gets his head shot is not a movie I want you to watch, but it is permissible for Casey. We have different strengths and weaknesses, and God shows himself to be among us by distinguishing us from other people. 
I find out in my life that many times something has been permissible. I felt the approval of God's Spirit until a certain day. And on that day, He simply said, I don't want you to do this. I don't get to say, first let me, Lord, and then I'll be obedient. I don't get the opportunity to say, why, Lord? I mean, I can ask, but He's under no obligation to answer me. You know why? He is not my cosmic genie there to do my will. I am His servant. He is my master. I do what He tells me to do. And it is a blessing if later I found out why. But you don't always get that. I told the story before. There's a man saying, Lord, I will do anything for you. This is not a preacher's story. It's a true story. <laughs> I will do anything for you, Lord. He says he felt as if the Lord told him to go to a clown shop. Go tell that to your friends, right? He dresses as a clown. He said then he's praying, struggling, saying, there is no, this guy's a lawyer, by the way. No way. No way, I can't do this thing. said the Lord was showing him that he needed to put a sign that says God loves you and go stand by the by freeway in Los Angeles. Would you do that if God told you to do that? I mean, he'd have to show up, write it in the stone. There are no, mountain, there are no mountains in Louisiana where I'm from, but he'd have to create the mountain, write it in stone, and hand it to me. Nevertheless, the guy goes walking out there in the clown suit with a sign that says God loves you. And an atheist is driving down the road said, if there really was a God, he'd have to show me somehow. And as he's thinking about it, he says to himself and to no one else, I mean, it'd have to, it can't be one of these, one of my friend's brother, sister's mother knew somebody who got healed. It'd have to be something that you never see. Lord, like a clown in a suit with a sign that told me, if I saw that, I might believe. And he looks up and at his exit is a man in a clown suit with a sign that says, Jesus loves you. God has the right to do whatever He wants to do. We do not have the right to say, First, Lord, let me. That makes us God. That makes Him the servant. What would you do if your child, if you said, Hey, go take a bath, brush your teeth, and go to bed. And your child said, First, I want you to do this, this, and this. <laughs> would you ask Judah what would happen to him? <laughs> Turn with me then to Malachi. What was the point of the Levitical uh, dietary covenant? God wanted His people to make distinctions about everything. He was trying to teach them. This made them stand out because a fat Gentile like Eric is standing there eating uh, a pork loin, got bacon cooking. <laughs> hey, guys, I love God. What's wrong with y'all? Why can't you eat this? I can eat it. Look, <laughs> I can eat it. I got some ice cream. <laughs> they can't eat it because God said it was unclean for them. You in Malachi? Yeah. I'm not. In Malachi, the third chapter and the 17th verse. My, my, my. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. God Himself speaks of a day when He says, because my mercy will be on some, you will begin to see a distinction between them and the wicked. God's will is that we be easily 
discernible. To put a distinction in something is to show that two things are different. Do you think, saints, maybe this is why the Word says friendship with the world is warfare to God? Well, I was just trying to witness to them, really. Are you more like them or are they more like you? They said they like to go to church now. Whose church? Where? Is it showing up in their lives? I got relatives that watch Joel Osteen on TV. I do. I'm thankful that some seed going in their life that does not make them Christian. I've seen McDonald's commercials on TV. I am not a chicken McNugget. <laughs> Debatable as that may be. How many chicken McNuggets can you eat before you become a chicken McNugget? In Acts 15, the ninth verse, don't go there. In Acts 15 and the ninth verse, there is a major point made. In Acts chapter 15 and the ninth verse, the argument is, wow, these crazy pork-eating Gentiles are coming to our meetings. And they got filled with God's Spirit, and He doesn't seem to make a distinction between them and us. The people of God are to be distinct. We are. We're supposed to be separate from all the peoples of the world. But God is also inclusive, and His, His will is that we stand alone, shining bright like the stars in the heavens, and others join us. We're not to be distinct solely for the purpose of being distinct. You could be in a cult and be that. We're to be distinct as set apart for God so that others will see His kingdom. Others will see His handwriting in our lives and want to imitate it. God said that he would make no distinction between the Gentiles who called upon his name and the Jews who did. That doesn't mean that they were immediately the same people. Any more than the fact that he doesn't make a distinction between Matthew and Cassidy means that their roles are exactly the same. Cassidy's got a baby. Matt will never have a baby, thank God. That's Cassidy's role. Jews and Gentiles have different roles even today. But we just happen to be grafted into all of their blessings, having skipped out on centuries of their requirements. How about that? In this plague of flies in Exodus 20, or Exodus 8, Pharaoh says something that we need to consider. This is probably where the vast majority of Christians who love the Lord are. Some of the others we talk about are not even Christians who love the Lord. They're Christians who want to look like they love the Lord. But now we're speaking about Christians who really do love the Lord and are fighting with Pharaoh in their life. So in Exodus 8, look at verse uh, 24. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the house of the officials and throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. God told Pharaoh... Let my people go. Pharaoh's response is, you can sacrifice, but do it here in the land. But Moses said, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. Unless you just made one of those kind of churches that was inclusive of everyone. There were no Unitarian churches in Egypt apparently yet. I assure you they're there now, if not in actual Egypt, in spiritual Egypt. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? 
We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer our sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commanded us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer your sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. There is an attitude that says, I'll do what you want, but first let me do this. That's wrong. We've covered that. Y'all got it? That's wrong. Here's another one. You can be sold out for Jesus. Just don't go be one of those fanatics. I can't tell you how many times I was told that in the first two years of Christianity. It slows down now because I think I've removed all doubt that I'm already there. What the devil will do is say, hey, you can love God. Just don't go that far. The problem is God has told you to go all the way. He wants all of your life. He is jealous for you. And when we tell him, Lord, we love you, but we're only going to go so far with you. We're going to hold back these areas of our lives. He won't put up with it any more than a husband would put up with that. Or a wife would put up with that with her spouse. That doesn't work. You're either married to God or you're dating him. And he's not a dating kind of God. He's a covenant kind of God. His name, Yahweh, is a covenant name for God. They could have called him many names that had to do with his attributes. This was the name that was associated with the fact that he had made them eternal promises that he always was, that he always will be, and that his word was good. Pharaoh has a habit of talking the people into only going so far. You remember what it was like to be zealous for God? To be willing to conquer mountains for him? To do anything? To the point where because you didn't have all that much knowledge, you were sometimes stupid for him? You did things that were ill-advised? Somewhere along the way, Christians have a way of getting wiser with a worldly wisdom where we will only go so far with God. Saints, pray for baby skin on your hearts. That just will not make it. If we're not willing to go to the cross and beyond, then He's not really our Lord. He's some degree of a genie that we're putting in a bottle, isn't He? I don't want that. First Peter 5, 8 says that the devil, your adversary, is like a roaring lion, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I want to tell you something, saints. You know who he gets to devour? Those who will only go so far. Those that trail behind on God's leading. Those that say, yes, Lord, I will go, but kind of at my own pace and not uh, really associated with those bunch of crazies. Those who want to be just a little more dignified. They're lion food. The lions ate the stragglers and that straggling in the kingdom. John 8.44 says that the devil is a murderer and a liar, and he has been such from the very beginning of time. Why do you think he lies and says, don't go so far? Because he wants to kill you. John 10.10, Nick accurately taught on. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. And he wants to destroy you. Something you may not have known was that Proverbs 17.4, you should write this down, read it after the message. Proverbs 17.4 doesn't just say that a liar is wicked. Wouldn't that be great? The liar is wicked. We can all agree on that. You know what else it says? 
listen to his lies. You are wicked. Why? Why are you wicked for something so tacit as just sitting by and listening to someone lie? I mean, you just didn't want to be rude, right? You didn't want to call them out, right? I mean, you don't want to do that. Because God knows that if you listen to the lies long enough, you begin to believe them. And the one who is lying to you is a murderer and has been a murderer from the beginning. He kills reputations, he kills callings, and he kills people. That's what he does. So it's wicked to even listen to him. You ever heard somebody say, I believe God told me this, and you know, I was thinking to myself, well, that's a conversation you're not allowed to have. There's nothing in self that is good at all. Weigh all of your decisions with the word, period. Have no conversations with the devil. But that's very restrictive. Black and white is narrow. It's not like everything is so absolute. God's will is absolute. It's the only absolute truth there is. Everything else is shades of gray. The scripture that got me saved was Matthew 7. It said, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. Only he who does the will of my Father will enter. I could say all of the right things. I had the right genie in the right bottle. But I was living out of the cistern, not the spring of life. And the thing that finished me off if there was a knockout punch was 1 John 2, 4. It says, if you say you have fellowship with the Father and you walk in darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth. I still know that one in King James because that's the only Bible I had at the time. But you know what? It sunk right down in my soul. A hypocrite is an ancient word for an actor. And when we say the church is full of hypocrites, that means that the church is full of people who are acting like God is their Lord, but He's not really. I don't want that. God makes a distinction. There's a plague of livestock. There's a plague of boils. There's a plague of hail. And when the plague of hail comes, the Egyptians are actually going, uh, maybe we should listen to Moses. Pharaoh doesn't want to, but the Egyptians are going, uh, let's move all of our animals inside. The Word actually records that. When the people of God stand as distinct, people in the world start to make a distinction. They start to notice. And they start to kind of test to see if it works. After this, there's a plague of locusts. During the plague of locusts, Pharaoh's own cabinet, his advisory panel, says, uh, kind of obvious that God is here and he's, he's ruining Egypt. They all turned on him. God will turn up the heat until the person who is stiff-necked and resistant is punished. But at the same time, he shows mercy to anybody that will turn towards him. This takes us to the last plague that I'm going to read to you about and near the end of our time. This would be in Exodus 10. Please don't give up on me. Stick in there with me here just a few more words. After this, I won't make you turn. I'll read them to you. I would hate to be accused of torturing you in some way. And the 10th chapter will be in the 21st verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky. 
and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places that they lived. It was so dark in Egypt that they couldn't leave their house. And the darkness could be felt. God wants to make a distinction between those who are really His and those that are not, regardless of the name you wear, the church you go to, or what your religious pedigree is. And one of the ways that He does it is darkness will begin to consume your life if you are not God's. And the darkness is something that can be touched. It can be felt. It begins to ooze out of you. This is why sometimes as a pastor I can sit in a room and look into somebody's eyes and see that they're not what they say that they are. That darkness is not meant to be there to swallow someone. What would you do if you're sitting in this house and all of the power is out and it's been dark and it's been dark for a long time but you looked across the street and their generators were working their refrigerator was cold. Their air conditioner was still working. What would you do, saints? You would go knock on their door and ask if you could join their party, wouldn't you? God wants there to be a distinction. So He makes it very light, even an abundant life in the kingdom of God. And He will allow it to become as dark as is possible for those in the world. He does this so that they will want a way out. Perhaps it's true what the rabbis say. The world was covered in darkness and God said, let there be light. And then He set a great light in the heavens to separate the light from the darkness. What do we call that great light in the heavens? What do we call it? Yeah. You think maybe in English we misspelled it? Maybe it should have been S-O-N. Jesus is a great light in the heavens. He is separating light from darkness, wheat from chaff, sheep from goats. That's not to burn people. That's the end result if they don't move. It's to show them clearly, you have to make a choice to get with me. John 1 opens in these ways. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. God is making His appeal by there being a distinction between His Son and His Son's kingdom and the world. And so far, the world doesn't understand it. Where are you in that struggle? Everybody likes to quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Can anybody pick up where I left off? Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness 
instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly. Did you hear that? So that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. God wants there to be a distinction between His people and the rest of the world so that those that find themselves in the dark know where to turn and that it is a plain situation, an obvious distinction. Nobody should ever in your whole life have to ask you if you're a Christian. It should be plain by what you do. And if they do ask you if you're a Christian, it should be because they've met you and you're in the first 30 seconds. When Jesus spoke again, this is John 8:12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It was never Jesus' will that we spend half our time in the darkness of Egypt and half our time in the light of Goshen. We're supposed to hate sin, not hide in darkness so that it can be covered. Never walk in darkness. Matthew 5:14. he says something about each of you. You are the light of the world. A city, kind of like Goshen, on a hilltop cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a, lamp, a light under a lamp or a bowl. I can't say it right. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. See, if you're in the darkness of Egypt and you look over and you go, I cannot believe it. Goshen still has light. And it said all the places where they lived. So don't think of Goshen as a tightly little group. It's Egypt. And wherever there was an Israelite, there was light. We're supposed to be like that. Our lives are supposed to be like that. When God called Saul, who became Paul, he says, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sin. When we live as we should, it is a great big lighthouse saying, if you're in a storm, come and see me. I can show you how to be forgiven just like I have been forgiven. Not forgiven so that you can go back out and mess it up again. Forgiven so that now we can all walk together in the kingdom of life. Here's the last scripture that I have for you. This is Colossians 1. I'm going to start in the ninth verse, and I've read this to you every week now for four weeks at some point during the message. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, 
according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and in the kingdom of light. For He rescued us from the dominion of darkness. What do you think that means in light of what we just read? He rescued us from the deepest, darkest possible kind of slavery and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Saints, this is an example that was written down. People were enslaved for 400 years to get us a message. Be a distinct people group. Live a slave no longer. No compromise. I didn't read it to you. But when Pharaoh saw the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, he says, fine, go, get out of here, leave. Go, just get out. Except, leave your livestock behind. Moses looked at him and said, I will not leave a hoof behind. Not one foot on a four-legged animal will remain in this place. We are all going to the kingdom of light. What have we left behind? Is it your set of eyes? Is it your soul? Your mind, will, and emotions? Is it carnal impulses? What did we leave in Egypt that God intended to dwell solely in the kingdom of life? If people looking cannot discern the difference between us and the world, what hope do they have? You're saved. Good for you. Let's quit arguing about that. What hope do they have? Everything in Christianity is for the benefit of someone else. And if we look, smell, and act like the world, what hope do they have? He called us to be a distinct people group. He grafted us into a nation that in every way was distinct. Their lives serve as an example for us. We need to come apart, be separate, and be holy. Amen? Amen. Y'all stand to your feet.